Welcome to Bread and Milk. I'm Naomi Devlin and I'll be taking you on a soothing ramble through the food memories and life stories of some of my favourite people. This week's guest is Tim Hayward. He's a food critic and author of many books which I'll put links to in the show notes. And I first met him at Abergavenny Food Festival when some drink had been taken and I was just struck by what a warm, intelligent, funny man he was. And there is a little bit of swearing. Uh, it's joyful swearing, uh, but it may, it, it may not be appropriate for children to hear and I haven't noted exactly where it is in the podcast, so I apologise for that. It was a really interesting conversation about the nature of the authentic experience of food and what connects us to real food and that real experience of eating well. I really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you do too. And just a quick note to say that the sound isn't fantastic on this. Uh, it's one of those things recorded over Zoom and it means that the sound wasn't necessarily the same volume from both of us. And also Tim is a very popular person and had many emails <laughs> during, the, um, during the conversation and so you'll hear those coming in. But please bear with us and enjoy it nonetheless. Somebody said the trick to being a really great writer is not about learning to spell or punctuate or anything like that. It's find the thing that you really care about and write in a way that transmits your enthusiasm. And quite early on, particularly with radio work and with sort of interviewing on things like the food programme, where I had some very good producers I learned a lot from, they, they actually said, like, you know, whatever you do, don't lose your enthusiasm. If you do quit, do you know what I mean? It's kind of like, you know, I've got to look at myself and say, if I ever, if I ever have to fake enthusiasm for talking to a potato farmer, <laughs> it really is time to resign. Yeah. You know, just back up, go, it's fine, you've, you've made the money, you've, this is the time to leave while you're still ahead. But you could apply that to anything, couldn't you? Anything yes. in life, if you don't mean it, if it's not moving you, then why are you doing it at all? It's not, it's not about the money. It's not about needing to pay a mortgage or anything. That actually being present in whatever you're doing is what makes it valuable. Yes, yes. And as I, be, being present, uh, having had a bit of psychotherapy and, and been married to a Zen practitioner for many years. <laughs> that was the first wife, by the way. I, I, I'm, I'm aware of the sort of the, the being present thing. It, it, it's, it doesn't sit well with me personally. When I first started doing sort of TV stuff, I was incredibly embarrassed by my voice. I was born in Bristol. I had a Bristolian accent, a very strong Bristolian accent. I still have a hard R. It's difficult for me to pronounce a word that's got an R in it without sounding the R. Um, and I also, you know, I think I'm nasal. I think I talk too fast. I think I gesture too much, all that sort of stuff. And at one point, I think I was still working for an advertising agency when I was doing the work. So it was the kind of thing you did. And I found a bloke who was a speech coach at the Royal Shakespeare Company. And uh, he, was, he was such an incredible lovey. He was mum. I mean, he didn't quite have a velvet cloak, but he might as well have. And he invited me around to his flat in Belsize Park. Lovely old 1930s flat. And we sat down and we chatted for a while. And he had me lie on the floor and say things like, ma, 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 me, 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 me. And then he sat me in front of a video camera. And um, at the end of it, he said, it was so nice. He said, I, I don't even, I can't even charge you. It's ridiculous. There's nothing wrong with your voice at all. I said, well, so lovely. what do you mean? He said, no, no, absolutely nothing wrong at all. But, and the key, the thing he said was, when you look at a camera, you've got to think about the person you're talking to, which is why Zoom is great. Yeah. You can't not be talking to a person. Yes, all my teaching's been online. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I've done lots of presentations as well. And those presentations are always done just to the camera and with maybe tiny faces that you can't mm -hmm. see. And so I've had to learn how to just be doing my thing without that the kind of feedback of those smiling faces or mm -hmm. and in some ways it's 
it's a relief because you just kind of you get going and then you're chuntering and then you're off mm. but I think we use feedback from from visual feedback from people's faces a lot don't we so it can if you're not a natural naturally exuberant person I guess it it, mm. it kind of puts the puts the break on it a bit <laughs> and you do have a lovely voice I I can't believe that but you have very much ironed the Bristol out of it Oh God, yes! No, I lived in Oxford for years after that, and uh, moved to the South Coast. So I'm either estuarine or horribly posh, yes. which is right because I'm not horribly posh. But <laughs> you're not horribly posh, definitely. But it is more Oxford than Bristol. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in Winchester, and that's where I got my accent. And yes. so, and uh, I moved down to Dorset when I was eleven, and got the piss ripped out of me by the local kids for being oh, posh. God. That's fantastic. I, I moved from Oxford to Bournemouth. Okay. where I was a teenager and got ripped to hell for being posh. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Like, I'm not posh. Can you see how poor we are? My mum's a hippie. I live in a commune. It, we're, we're not posh at all. And yet it's just the kind of received pronunciation. I just love bread. I really love bread. And not in a kind of look at the way, the nurturing way that I'm making this beautiful sourdough. It's, I remember my mum, when we were really broke, making little squares of fried sun-blessed. No fried way. Fat, and then she put a dollop of mash on top of it. And you poke your thumb in it and fill it with ketchup. Okay. And so I've got carb, carb fried with ketchup. Yeah, carb fried carb with ketchup. We didn't have much money. <laughs> then I started thinking about all the things I really loved about bread. And it came everything up to crisp sandwiches and fantastic meals I had in French restaurants. And the first time I was in Paris, getting off the train early in the morning, getting a, breaking home the first baguette and all that, every, all those bits. And actually my publisher, who I then ranted at about this for a while, she said, well, go on then, write it, do it. And we'll do it like a book. And we'll even, we'll probably have to put some recipes in. We'll put the recipes on the back in a separate little booklet like they used to in the old days. And I've ended up with a book that's like a book of emotional memories that I had no intention of writing ever. She sort of trapped me into writing something that was a bit biographical. That's so lovely. Fun. So no, I, I enjoyed it. And but, but for me, it's I'm probably the only restaurant critic in the country that just can't stick Michelin star food. <laughs> you would rather have a cube of bread fried in bacon fat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's if you look at your Instagram feed, that's pretty much what it is, isn't it? Well, you'll you'll like you'll like what I'm doing next. It's something I've been dreaming up for ages. I've just thought I'm going to start doing all of the great classics of the Western canon in a bap. Oh, nice. <laughs> exactly. So like veal Holstein with a, it won't be veal, it'll be a pork escalop, you know, buttered, uh, uh, done in butter and, and breadcrumbs with an egg on top nice. in a bap. Nice. And then after that, I'm going to do, you know, uh, uh, Tony Adios Rossini in a bap. Uh, and it, it, it's going to be marvellous. I love Arnold, it. Arnold Bennett in a bap. You've waited for this your entire life. I, I, I mean, it, it's a weird, it's a weird position because I, I, I am a restaurant critic for, a, for a, I'm very lucky to do so for a very creditable paper, and you would think that all they wanted to read about was Michelin star restaurants that they go to with all their money, and actually that hasn't worked that well for them. What has worked is they've let me go to weird little places that I like. I really like places where you sit up against the bar. And you can see the bloke making the food on the other side. Yeah. So anything from a shellfish bar in San Francisco through to a... I've just written a really, really happy review about a yakitori bar. Ah, yes. What, in this country? Yeah, yeah. They've just owned one in Soho. Japanese chef who worked for Ramsay for a while and then set up his own yakitori bar. It's great. How can you not love the emotional connection? Yeah. And it is. And is it a little just sit yeah. up at the bar, the guys the bar, cooking on the edge? cooking it. It's so good. It's all about that and not about the the detachment of the 14 courses and everything tiny. There's a bloke called Jim Harrison, who's a food writer who, who died a couple of years ago. He was also a very famous Hollywood screenwriter. Um, one of his most famous was a, a movie called A River Runs Through It which is the only movie ever made about fly fishing, uh, in which Brad Pitt wears a fly fishing vest and catches trout. It's so, so sexy. But he lived in Montana most of his life. Uh, He grew up on a farm, shot his eye out by accident with an air rifle, beardy, fat old redneck. 
But he travelled all around the world writing for places for people like Vogue, Vanity Fair, hugely successful and, and brilliant at that kind of life well lived, Hemingway-esque kind of muscular writing about muscular eating. Mm. And, and he said there was something about never trust the distance between preparation and eating of food because it fills with cold abstraction. I always feel that sort of thing when I'm in anything with any kind of stars to its name because it's it somehow the relaxed experience of eating yeah. has gone because you're thinking about what am I wearing, what am I saying, what's everyone else doing, am I with the right forks and, and the, the, is the wine paired correctly and all of that completely takes you away from the sensual experience of eating. The cold, the cold abstraction thing becomes quite complicated because when you go into a restaurant on a job and they start fartling about with the 14 courses and things come out on a rock and things like that, <laughs> in the back of your head, you're going, okay, you've got to get past the cold abstraction before I have any interest. And it's beautiful and it's something I'd like. It's a perfect, perfectly fresh longoustine tail on a pebble. It's been glazed, it's been cooked by three guys, all with tiny tongs doing it. Whereas single glorious food memory in a couple of words, uh, with my first wife going to a family crab cracking on an island just off North Carolina. And you're basically some big sucker of an uncle, some profoundly redneck cousin, probably got a concealed carry weapon on him somewhere. He's got a big tub of seawater into which they pour us a gunny sack full of tiny shitty crabs boil them up with a whole tub of, uh, it's called Old Bay, and we use it as a seasoning here. Over there it's a boil. It's a, it's a proprietary seasoning for a crab boil. And everybody sits around with very cold, cheap shit beer, and it's all petrol, little pump petrol lights to keep the bugs off you. And then uh, suddenly, you know, old Festus will come over and pour the stuff out onto the table, which is covered with newspaper. And people dig out their knives or a hammer or whatever it might be, and you crack crabs and you suck the crabs and the best bit is the sucky brainy bit that comes out and you get it everywhere. I tend to measure a restaurant rather than in stars more how much butter I get in my beard. Exactly. Butter in the beard is a vital measurement of a quality restaurant. How can you not just think food like that is fundamentally viscerally sexy? Yes, so what is it that's different about that? And so you're saying these crabs were buttered? So literally boiled with the bay seasoning and then... Drawn, drawn butter, you dip them in drawn butter. Yeah. Oh. God, I mean, literally, I, I can imagine that. And the, and there's something as well about the immediacy of it all, isn't there? It's no, you're part of the cooking, you're, uh, and it's not fancy cooking. It's just, it's the simple. Uh, and also, I'm assuming they're fresh. They're coming fresh to the table. They're freshly boiled. There's nothing in between you and that and the butter, and then you're eating it. It can be fancy if you, if you're in it all the way through, if you're, you, you said it earlier, but present yeah. at the process of manufacture. So, yeah, I mean, obviously I've, I've you know, I've dated cooks and, and been very good friends with cooks and things like that. And you, when we go around to each other's houses, if you're making something quite fussy for dinner, somebody will say, you know, well, hey, I'm doing the starters. Come, come and see this. Come and see what I'm doing with these scallops. You know, they're sitting there doing all this stuff and tweaking and tweaking. And you love them. You love them in that moment. Because of that, there is nothing more gorgeous than that focus on something that they're going to give to you because they want to make your life better. It's so, so lovely. And then when you get that, you see that happening. Yeah. You can, you can take that out. You can take it out of the table. There can be napery all over the place and lots of people pouring out very expensive wines that they've cared to match. And none of that matters. Because no. you just saw what you saw in the kitchen. Yes. And, <laughs> and actually... If you go into the kitchen and the person in the kitchen is anxious and they're fiddling around, they don't want you there and, and you don't feel that connection and that kind of sense of their absolute, it's love, it is love. The love yeah. that they're, I know it's such a hackneyed word, isn't it? But in, you know, it's like passion. Ooh. But, but the, it is love that they're pushing into whatever they're cooking and that they're doing it in a kind of 
Gosh, we're, we're really um, taking this down a, a very hackneyed path, but that, that, that they are present because they're cooking it in, in a relaxed way. It's very different experience to going in and seeing someone who's anxious and shouting and all going to a dinner party where someone is, you know, the, the hosts are bickering because they've yeah. gone too far and they're, they're making something too complex. And you're like, oh, this is taking all the kind of the nourishment out of it. But you see, this is, I love that you feel a slight embarrassment talking like that, because this is really key. Like I said, my first wife was a, she was lovely, but a raging hippie. Yeah. And all of that woo-woo bollocks drives me up the wall. <laughs> and I realized the other day that I write the way I write. I don't live a Hemingway-esque life. They had to take me out and teach me how to shoot animals once. And okay. I did it two or three times. And after that, I thought, you know what? I'm going to let some other chap do that because I really don't care for it. You know, why? I'm perfectly happy to eat small birds, but pluck, you know, I don't need that stuff. I don't need them. But I write like I'm, you know, with yes. a, consci a conscious muscularity. Yes. And it really is what I'm trying to do at all times is say all of that stuff about love and nurturing and caring and blah, without it sounding bollocks. It's, that is so what it's all about. It really is that. And, and Harrison did that for me better than anybody else. Because you realised he was the softest bear of a human being, the most pathetic, weeping romantic. His weeping romanticism actually manifests itself in chasing younger women around. Oh, no. And, and his, you know, and his romanticism about food manifests itself in stuffing himself in French restaurants. But... The same thing is there at the heart, that thing about the love and the desire. And I, I oh God, it's... It's a connection with yourself, isn't it? And a, a willingness to connect with that part of other people or that part of any experience mm -hmm. rather than to... I was going to say it's Catholic, but it's not. It's anti-Protestant or anti that kind of, you know, we only exist above the neck. <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a really interesting point. That's always fascinated me about the way we have, we've approached cuisines of the areas we live in. Mm. There is a North European Protestantism about English cuisine. Mm. It's one of the reasons we were so hopelessly in love with Elizabeth David, who after all was a posh bird who took a gap year and shagged her way around Europe with a handsome young art student. I mean, and who hasn't done that at some point in their lives? Um, you know, that, that, it, it, was, it, was that, it was that meeting of uptight, prim, post-war Englishness yeah. with the Catholic warmth of the Mediterranean. I don't think there's anything wrong with talking about it in Catholic and Protestant terms, as long as it's broad. Yeah, you know, very broad. It doesn't have anything to do with fiddling with kids. No, just, no it's, just, it's not that sort of Catholicism. No, <laughs> no the sensuality of yes. that. And, the, and actually it is also, like you were saying, oh, that she took a gap here and went abroad and it is the sensuality of being warm all the time and of mm. of being around produce that is just bursting out all over rather than a, a turnip that you have to in some well, way elevate well i started writing i also part of the reason i was doing it was i found it was so gendered mm. I mean, when I'm, I'm 57 now i suppose i started writing seriously about 20 years ago and at that point yeah blokes were the restaurant critics which is why i wasn't particularly interested in being a restaurant critic um, but everybody else was a woman. Everybody else was a middle-class woman. And they were all right. I mean, it was this, this dreadfully... It wasn't badly written, but it was just this sort of tropes about sort of sitting out under the jacaranda with your family around you and good olive oil and simple bread, handmade by peasants. And, Jesus, have a fucking sandwich, you people. You know, what? It's just, at that point, I was actually cooking in restaurants in the deep south, where there was a, a real, you know, muscularity to what was being done. Mm. And there were people that weren't white and weren't middle class doing things with whole pigs in sheds out the back. Yes, and, and all night barbecues. The uh, attention. I mean, spending 12 hours tending something, that is incredible, isn't it? Yes. But I think it also it also highlights this thing that, and I think this is a tension for all food writers. And I think we all need to have it tattooed on ourselves somewhere, which is we are writing about how rich people spend their discretionary income on their tea. 
Oh my god. And that's that's my day job. Yeah. If I can inject into that any element of do you know how fundamentally sexy a grilled cheese sandwich is? Mm. If I can get them out of the 15 Michelin stars and into the I got up late last night and there was a bit of pizza in the fridge and I know it's better cold with the Japanese mayonnaise on than it is reheated. So it's back to the thing about find the thing you really, really love. Communicate with enthusiasm. One of the things that started me thinking about this was uh, a peach, no, an apricot. And we were in uh, Liguria, just walking, me and my husband, and we were walking down this path, going down to the sea. It, this all sounds very bucolic, but it was actually a really hot day and we were very sweaty and it was a, a kind of stony path. And we just saw this apricot tree and there was an apricot underneath it on the ground. It was all hot and it had a few ants on it. And I picked it up and I said, oh my God, I'm going to eat this. And he was like, no, what? <laughs> floor it's got ants on it I was like this I guarantee you will be the best apricot you've ever eaten he was like oh, I'm not bothered by apricots anyway and we ate it and he had I mean his face you know the just the experience of that apricot and and now all other apricots will be compared to that you've got a keeper there yeah. because there's there's nothing I find more fundamentally unattractive than fussiness about food what about that experience what was uh, so amazing was that it was unexpected it wasn't kind of we weren't going to eat the apricot we were it was just incidental and therefore even more wonderful and and that the our experience previously of apricots had been the kind of woolly stuff that you get that's been refrigerated or and and never in the place what you know I mean literally in the place it's growing under the tree it's grown on in the sun uh, and that kind of immediacy is what I always look for with food. And like you're saying, it doesn't have to be something, it could be something fancy or it could be something simple, mm -hmm. but, but what makes it so kind of satisfying is that it's not pretentious. You know, I've had similar experiences, I'm sure you had, everywhere of eating fish by the sea or of, mm. of like, you know, you having that kind of crab crack uh, mm. of finding a place that's tucked out round the back that is where all the locals go that where they literally do the fish of the day and a salad which is a, just a chopped up iceberg lettuce and the local olive oil and that that meal is is just so much more than the thing which is kind of has been prepped and 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 it doesn't and it's not to say that that prepped like you were saying that special meal can't be special but that there's something that I find about the discovery of those very uh, authentic, again, that's an overused word, but it is authentic, isn't it? It's, it's like you're looking for the thing that people are doing when they're not uh, pretending to be anything other than what they are. Yes, yes, exactly that. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's so true everywhere in the world. When, when Japan started to sort of not exactly open up, but but English people caught on to Japanese food, all of the food writers went over, and they all had a very similar reaction, which is they came back with this kind of we have been to the top of the mountain and we have seen all the glory of the wonder of real food, properly immaculately prepared, etc. And they talk about the tradition, but they'd always talk about the the beautiful austerity and the simplicity and the, the purity and. It's great, but they'd all come back sort of changed by the experience. And it struck me as very similar to exactly the kind of, you know, borderline racist bollocks we used to talk about France 40 years ago, when people said, oh, I went to a lovely place in Burgundy, three stars, you know, but ah, it's not as good as it used to be, but simple food, simple food, made by simple people, can't get the ingredients in here, you know, you can only get olive oil if you're putting it in your ear, which was bollocks, by the way, you could always buy olive oil. Samuel Pepys had olive oil and he buried it in his back garden so it wouldn't get burned in the fire of London. That belief that you could only do it there. And we've translated that notion, that kind of exclusive notion. And actually, although I like, you know, a well-cut piece of sashimi as much as the next guy, 
really fascinated me to discover that the only way they were able to sell that to Westerners was with this notion of absolute purity and freshness. You don't get Italian haute cuisine because every single village has got a different way of cooking pasta and they will stab you in the neck for saying that your version is better than their mother's. That is exactly how Japan breaks down as a, as a place. Okay. I mean, you, you can take tours in Japan, apparently, around the out, sort of around the, the different tiny villages, just for the whole years at a time, just going to festivals where they're celebrating a particular kind of mushroom. Wow. And they all dress up as mushrooms. It's marvellous. Oh, my God, I would love to go to that. <laughs> we always imagine that we're the most racist nation, and actually a lot of nations are racist aren't they so a lot of great food nations are truly racist yes it's uh, not something <laughs> you can aspire to but it's there yeah but that's in, in some ways how you preserve your culture isn't it that the only way to avoid homogeneity is to actually to fiercely preserve it in the way the italians do and it's not necessarily a an attractive thing but you will end up with something that's preserved I, I don't speak Italian, sadly, and I was over in uh, Tuscany a couple of years ago doing a trip um, learning about pasta, pasta making with, with old grannies. Nice. And I had a translator with me. And um, at one point, this sort of granny gave a whole mouthful of spiel about, um, she said they're losing these skills because of the immigrants. <gasps> and and uh, okay, fine. And then and, you know, from that point onwards, you realise that pretty much all of the these sort of lovely old old dears were were doing it out of a sense of defiance yes. of the people that they saw coming and invading their tiny quiet corner of Tuscany. Yeah, um, it put a whole different tonality on it altogether. Yes, um, but I mean, as liberals, we that makes your ass pucker, doesn't yeah. it? You know, Absolutely. really. But yeah. you can see why. I can definitely see why people are like that. So the book you wrote about food memories. Mm. So what was it that stood out for you? Is there a standout memory or, or was it just a kind of trail through your life? Was there something that really stood out? I, I think if it, if it was about cooking and creating individual dishes or about discovering I had a marvellous palate or something like that, you could have expected some kind of um, turning point. Yes. But, but it's my, for me, it's just, my, you know, you eat every day, yes. three times a day, more if you're lucky. And... It's been just a long, long process. I mean, you know, it was really significant for me the first time I had crisps in a sandwich. Right. Because why was it significant? I've never had crisps in a sandwich. I'd heard about it a lot and, you know, people talked about it. I never did it. I put some crisps in a sandwich. It was really interesting. Oh. <laughs> Are we talking when you were six or six? No, this was so five years ago. Okay. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, really. You know, you've, you're constantly seeking. I mean, I get to do this full time. So it's part of, you know, if one has a, a creative process, you know, tasting things that you haven't tasted before has to be part of it. The assumption is that everyone, by the time they get to secondary school, has put a crisp in a sandwich, for me. Oh, no, no, no. But then I was, I was such a, <laughs> such a terribly um, fussy kid. Were you? Yeah, yeah. About what? Well, well, so I, I interviewed a bunch of chefs a while back because my daughter was younger. She got quite, became quite a fussy eater. And lots of the mums at the school gate would ask me about their fussy eating children, thinking I had an answer. So I went and interviewed a bunch of chefs. And uh, most of them ate shit until they were about 23. Yeah. And most of them lived on pot noodles and had no idea about food as being of any interest. I was probably the same. But no, I, I, I went to a dismal school at one point when I was living in Oxford. And I used to take packed lunch every day. But because I was really very, very neurotic, it had to be the same packed lunch every day. And it was, uh, it was sardine and tomato paste, shippums, on, on white bread. Yeah. I can still smell it coming out of the, out of the, out of the plastic container. Like, hey. Yeah, oh, I bet when that was warmed up. Yeah, really fermented. But I'd done that because my grandfather, who'd been, he, he came from a Welsh mining village, but he, uh, during the war, he became an intelligence officer. He, uh, he used to interview the pilots as they landed the, the bombers, a lot of Canadian crews in some of the... They get shot to death. It was a horrible experience for him. And he was always very anti-violence and very quiet and plastic. He became a head teacher later on in a really tough school in which he wouldn't use corporal punishment, which was unheard of at that time. Wow. But he had what we would call today, without shadow of a doubt, a combination of IBS and 
all the other sort of autoimmune lower bowel things. They didn't have allergies back then. Absolutely not. They didn't have intolerances. Different foods would give him the pip. And though he, he would then automatically exclude them when he had, the, he had the pip. So tomatoes gave him the pip and then onions gave him the pip. Then he discovered bread gave him the pip and he kept going on and going on. And he ended up, at the end of his life, all he ate was uh, raw eggs and a prairie oyster in the morning and uh, a meat paste sandwich at the end of the afternoon. And God knows what his bowels must be like by this. But, <laughs> but it, that obviously imprinted on me as a way of, of, you know, genuine way of being. Like managing the fearfulness of food or... I think so. I think so. Later on, many years later, I, I, I was in, uh, in Jungian therapy. And I remember at an early stage talking to a therapist about the fact that pretty much everybody in my family had various forms of eating disorders. And I said very glibly, you know, they're all nutters with their eating. I'm, I'm the only normal one. And he says, what, what is it you do for a living again? And I, I said, ah, well, oh, oh, hang on a minute. Sort of, uh, yeah. So yes. I, don't, I don't really, I don't dig into it too much because I, I mean, it feels fairly benign apart from the fact that I'm probably overweight and my life has been probably shortened by that experience. But if I lose 10 years off my life, it's not going to be 10 years I want to have back. No, you know, no. it won't be the 10 years between being 20 and 30. It'll be the 10 years between being 70 and 80, and they're going to be shit. I might as well fry everything. So what was it you were afraid of food being unfamiliar, or why was it that you narrowed your food choices so much? I think I'd seen other people doing it, probably, and I just thought that was probably the thing to do. There's still a thing now where some meals, I really, really don't want you to mess with it. Mm. because it takes it too far off my expectations. The one I would, would normally land on, because it's easier for most people to understand, is either a BLT or Eggs Benedict. Okay. Well, if you go into a restaurant and they've got a BLT on the menu, or if you, if you order room service in a hotel, there's a BLT. If it turns up and it's not bacon, lettuce and tomato in two pieces or possibly three pieces of toasted bread, you can fuck right off. Because if, you've, if that's the day you've decided to experiment with a ponzu mayonnaise, the chef's own ponzu mayonnaise, <laughs> or we thought we'd put some grated lemon zest in it this, this time, or it's our own bread. No, just no. Yeah. You know, I, I ordered it because it was comfort food. I ordered, I ordered that room service meal because I'm missing my family. I'm miles away from home. I've been eating shit on the road for days. We've been recording something. I wanted that damn sandwich. Yeah. And if you grind my expectation gears at that point, I will be depressed as a result of it. Don't <laughs> make me do that. You can mess with the breakfast all you like, but you don't do an orange hollandaise or I will come out to the kitchen and explain it to you. No, I'm with you. I'm <laughs> definitely with you. And I would actually, it's interesting that, that idea that that you think everyone else is a nutter because I think that is a it's a natural thing is that you think oh well what I do is normal because it is normal for you and uh, and so uh, because I have celiac disease I've had to I had to go through whole huge phases of of restricting my choices and then my my response was okay well if I can eat it I will and and therefore I will try everything and and you know expand 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 and actually now I've come back to a point where I do actually just want to eat what I want to eat at the time and be okay with that mm. and that if it is a, a thing that I want done a certain way my my thing is sweet potato chips which which I have a fondness for but and it took me quite a few years to to love my husband could do them exactly the way I like them which is you know cooked put long enough so that they crisp up they're still soft and then maybe there's some some bits of them that are slightly charred and and he would always bring out these soft potato chips and uh, sweet potato chips and I was just like this is not what I want is when I've been picturing this thing in my mind I've been I've been imagining exactly the sweet potato chip that I would make or that I want and some and when you bring out the one that's almost right it it, it just saddens me I'm I'm just I almost don't want to eat it at all it's funny when you when you have kids and you start cooking for them and I realized my daughter's 18 now we were chatting about this the other day and I you know, made another meal that I knew was of the type of thing that she likes, you know, to her particular standards and so on. And I said, you know, when I was a kid, you know, even when I was your age, you know, if I went to eat something and it was badly made or it wasn't what I liked or something like that, I had to eat it. Mm. She said, yeah, it's really weird, isn't it? Because we're not like that. No. 
you know, we've got back, we've got absolute choice in everything. And why would I eat it if I didn't want to? So when I'm at friends' houses and their mums cook for me, I eat whatever they put in front of me. Okay. But otherwise, why would I? Completely blew me away. I thought that's just that's kind of, I kind of think the same thing. Well, it's the opposite of food is fuel, isn't it? It's like, this is an opportunity for me to have exactly the experience that I want. And I, I want it this way. But I would say that there is an element to that which is not healthy because of our natural in inclination to want to eat fat, sugar uh, and starch uh, and salt. That we're, uh, if we follow our nature to just eat that, then obviously palates become infantile and we forget to eat Mm -hmm. uh bitter things and chewy things you know this is another thing i'm always um i would <laughs> force my son to eat the chewy bits at the end of broccoli oh, because yes. your gut needs them oh. and i and still now and i get i feel like i'm throwing my husband under the bus in this episode but he will leave the chewy bits at the end of his broccoli or asparagus and and i will sometimes pick them up and hand them to him and say you're not eating this and and now he we've been together long enough that he just says no I'm not eating that but yeah. I think you should eat that just because you should eat it because your body needs it I've got an enraged essay floating around somewhere about hard to eat <laughs> after a conversation I had with Liberty about pasta I was cooking something and she said can we have penne and I said well no because this is vongole you can't have penne vongole it just doesn't work and she said yeah but spaghetti is so difficult to eat what? What? You know, seriously, it's because it gets everywhere. I mean, a penny, you can shovel it in, it's easier. And you can't argue with it. But one thing she has done, and she has discovered the stems of broccoli. So it's not, it's not the really, really chewy bit. But when you take off all the florets, there's a big chunk left. She'll literally sit there for 10 minutes, delicately peeling it and shaping it up. until so it's like this beautiful little fat cucumber shape. And she'll boil that, she'll put it in the water before the rest of the broccoli so it boils longer. And she'll put it on a plate. And it's weird, it's one of the very, very few things, you, you know, she takes real care over. It would, we'd love you to wake up one day and discover that you were actually really quite competent at a sport. Rather than the thing where you go and you try all of them, and all of them are embarrassingly shite by lesson three. And you, it's at that point I have the problem that I don't really want to put 10,000 hours into anything apart no. from food. Well, apparently that's been disproved, that 10,000 hours. I think it's not true oh, really? at all. Yeah, Good. because I remember when I read that, I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, people do the thing that they enjoy doing and therefore they rack up all this time. But actually, you can also just have a kind of God-given talent for something and find that you're good at it straight away and therefore you get all this positive feedback and you continue doing it but you weren't it wasn't like you were crap until you got to 10,000 hours you were good at it right away and that's all right if it doesn't make you absolutely giddy with joy then why what's the impulse to do it and so my thing has been discovering swimming uh, so I swam through the winter and finding that I'm super cold tolerant to the point where other people they die basically well, it's, well kind of I mean I I worried that I'd uh, nearly killed my I guess he's my stepfather, but he's no longer with my mother. But in his seventies, who came, who it has no body fat whatsoever, came swimming with me, and uh, and wasn't even in as long as me. But afterwards, got the most incredible, almost edge of hypothermia, yeah. and which I just never have got. Got in coldest water you like, and and yeah. it just doesn't happen to me. And so it's like there is some kind of genetic or I mean I also am quite generously covered maybe that that helps uh to you know to be a little bit it, it, when you go to the to the to the sea in the winter all the people that you see there tend to look a little bit more like seals than like storks yeah but actually for me that was incredible to find that that, like you're saying, if there, only there was a sport that you could find, that there is something that I haven't been doing. I only started doing it this year, haven't been doing that all my life. And then suddenly I found that, oh, my God, I have a, a gift for this. Maybe mm. not a gift for the actual swimming part, but a gift. For... A gift for standing in very cold water. 
Good one. <laughs> I do think that thing of finding that you're good at something later on, like I was afraid of the sea. And so mm. it, it was that thing of conquering a fear was so kind of, uh, I'm, I'm, again, I'm struggling not to come up with cliches, but that kind of born again feeling of, of, oh my goodness, this is something I thought that I would never be able to do out of fear. And now I'm just doing it every day and it fills me with a feeling of courage. <laughs> I know that you had the worst kind of experience of COVID and I don't want to, you know, get oh. drag you down a dark place. But actually afterwards, there's a sense of uh, having survived something and coming out the other side. And I wondered how that felt. It wasn't actually tough for me because I was just like unconscious. And then after that, I was mad for quite a long time because uh, you come out with uh, delusions and everything else. And so I was on a, I was on a nut ward for... 10 days I think after do you mean after, after yeah. you'd actually come um, out of the yeah the whole delusional thing you, I mean there's there's not a lot going on apart from very lucid dreams when you're in the, the ICU but then when you start to come round and your brain's trying to process what went on you are completely uh, irrational delusional and that takes a long time to die off and all they can do inside the, the red wards which is where you have to stay inside the you know, because obviously you're still infectious they haven't got enough space to do all the usual sensitive handling of people who are, who are neurodivergent. Just a lot of physically restrained guys or um, people with, with really, really bad shot away Alzheimer's God. because we were all shared, you know, delusionally. Shared symptoms, yeah. So were you was, aware oh, of that at the time? Were you aware? Uh, was it like one forever cuckoo's nest? Yeah, pretty much. It was, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a sliding scale. Um, you know, when they first wake you up, you're not really conscious of anything. And then you start to become conscious of things. You're still delusional, but but some things are making sense. Mm -hmm. And then towards the end, you're just weeping to get out. Because, you know, I'm not mad. I'm really not mad. And then finally, somebody will say, no, you're not mad. Out you come. And they put you in a regular ward. But it was, it was dreadful for my family. My wife and daughter, you know, there was, I think, three times when I was in there, they didn't think I was going to come around the following day. Um, and that was pretty rough. I mean, it's just, I mean, I'm pretty uh, physically uh, knackered. Uh, I'm doing um, a lot of physio at the moment to try and get the use of my right leg back because the neurological damage means that, it's funny hearing you um, talking about your Achilles tendon and I'm working mine at the moment. So the leg's dead, but under the table, I've got a little wobble board that I'm, I'm trying to re-educate the, the foot to actually have some feeling and some movement. It'll take probably two years before I can walk regularly. I've stopped using the stick, which is nice. In terms of sort of reassessing your life, before it happened, I was very much live each day like it's your last because one day you're going to be right. I went into Jungian analysis at 40 because I thought some of my behaviour was pretty reprehensible. Um, I was misbehaving in all sorts of ways, really. And I wanted to sort of clean that up. And then when my daughter was born, uh, that didn't seem rational anymore. Because it just seemed self-indulgent, but I had a lot of other things to worry about. I finally had to look. I mean, most of your problems, I think, as a, as a young man, are about your massive childish self-indulgence. Some men, when you get hit with the, you're going to have a baby thing, go bonkers or run away or misbehave further. I'm reasonably responsible, particularly around children. And I just thought, screw it, well, that's it. I'm, you know, if I'm going to be doing this, I can't afford to be behaving poorly. So there was that sort of phase... So it kind of kicked you into touch. Yeah, yeah. And actually, Lib's nearly old enough to go off to university now, and that's that'll be the next phase of life. Mm -hmm. And this has come at sort of roughly the same time. So, so since she, well, when she was born, I quit my job in advertising, which gave me so many opportunities to be a complete arsehole. Mm -hmm. uh, and became, I, I did most of the childcare when she was younger, when she was a baby. Uh, and since then, I've started freelancing and kept freelancing. So I built that up. So I've always been my own boss, mm. but sort of focusing on, still focusing on having the best quality of life I can. Mm. And I think when she leaves home and coming out of the end of this illness, I'm just doing the same thing, which is, I don't know, <laughs> discovering a talent for something would be great. I think what I've discovered is I'm very good at staying alive and I'm really good at making sure that the time I have while I'm alive is spent gloriously. What does living gloriously mean for you? Eating great food um, and 
not having to worry about stuff too much. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds nice. <laughs> it's, you know, I'm, I'm, because I don't, I don't have, I was never particularly into physical sport anyway, or you know, the body beautiful. So I, you know, the fact I, I move to do the same rubbish slower. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to run a marathon ever again in my life, but then I didn't before. So what yeah. the hell? So it's not like you've lost that. No. Uh, and really. actually your, your ability to enjoy whatever it is you're enjoying is, is undiminished. Yes. Uh, and I, I do remember at one point, uh, my psychotherapist saying, you know, do you ever wonder that you think about your body as a vehicle for moving your brain around? I never, I never really thought I looked beautiful, so that wasn't the issue. You know, I, I, I've, I've always, I've always thought I was funny and clever, and you know, that's that works. That's great. That's a good thing. Yeah. So you know, you you concentrate on those things, and you don't. The rest of it doesn't so doesn't doesn't matter. How wonderful! Because that is a kind of indicator that you've already found your sweet spot. You want to do enough to keep your body going, but mm. that the fact that you didn't come out of that and think, and now I must do something different is fantastic. I just, I've probably talked about my psychotherapist more in this recording than I did when I was with my psychotherapist. One of his points, which was quite interesting, he just after I quit, he quit by the way, to become a full-time Buddhist, which was very sweet. But one of the things he said in one of his darker moments, he said, I sometimes think that everything that anybody ever comes to see me about is basically the same thing, which is control. People come and see me either because they think they exert too much control and they should be having more fun, or because they feel they're out of control in some way and they need to exert more control. But mm. the only thing that matters, he should have then said, by the way, to well-off white people, which is all he was dealing with, but the only thing that matters to people is how much control they have or haven't got. God. And I've always, one of the reasons we and I got on quite well is I've always had this, the, the non-formal Buddhist notion that that you embrace that which you can't control which is most of it um and if you live in fear of it you're going to be in fear forever and if you can manage to not live in fear of it then you're really in a, the best position for the for life that cheese sandwich you're about to eat might be the last thing you put in your mouth yeah. and there's probably all you can do about that so make it a good one yeah enjoy it i mean because why are we here if if it's not and and i don't mean joyful in the sense of happy smiley you know pollyannaism but but that why why are you doing anything if it doesn't bring you some kind of sense of satisfaction joy yes. uh, enlightenment you know all of those things it's like to do th something joylessly oh is the worst isn't it no I mean, I, but like, like like any normal human being i haven't managed to expunge all unpleasant things from my life but I don't worry in advance about them no. and after they're over I'm glad they're over are you charging me by the hour for this so I'll be on a couch <laughs> um but no that it's the buddhist thing isn't it of the of the the wheel that you move around and that the problems are getting stuck in any one place and uh, and to accept that life is is full of joyful events and upsetting events and and also to feel angry or to feel bored those are all absolutely part of it all but the thing counter to all of that is chugging away doing something because you have an idea about it being good for you and that that stops you moving forward and that the oh I have to load the dishwasher I hate this this is boring or oh you're doing something that irritates me none of that is a problem because that's all experience of life but it is it's precisely what you started with which is the notion of being present how wonderfully buddhist and circular you realize that this is the, that now your husband's a surfer yeah you must never let him see point break oh do you know what that's exactly the first thing he said he said tonight we're watching point break i was like no becomes <laughs> a surf bodhisattva you you've had it that's it it's all <laughs> over <laughs> no, no. He's uh, luckily because I grew up in a commune, and that uh, I've spent I spent many many years just going, oh my god, no, no, oh. all that waviness has to stay in the past. Yeah. He is fully aware that he must not go. We should start a thing for recovering hippies. Yeah, yeah. Like a, a support group. <laughs> <laughs>
where we all sit and wear chinos and shirts are buttoned up really quite neatly. And you could have a nice pleated A-line skirt. I've been through that phase and now I've come out <laughs> the other side, thank God. <laughs> Listen, you're never truly an ex-hippie. You're no. always a recovering hippie. I know, I know and I feel it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, when I first came out of the commune and uh, I went to, in fact, in Bournemouth, I did my arts uh, foundation in Bournemouth. Oh, um, Shelley Park. At Shelley Park, yeah. Yeah, me too. I did photography and filmmaking. There was um, the academy in Pokesdown. Yeah. And, and so we used to go there to dance. And I didn't realise that not everyone danced like this with throwing their arms around. Oh, bless you. And I used, oh, to, just, bless you. used to clear she a space did. around me with people going, oh, no. Somebody should have got the parachute out for you as well. <laughs> exactly. Oh, so that's so that sweet. That feeling of being exposed and not realising that, that what you're doing is so very obviously different from everyone else. Yeah, there you go. Oh, well, look, that is a beautifully circular place to leave. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and my bill for therapy is in the post. Thank you so much for giving me your time yeah. and uh, for a beautiful conversation. You are an absolutely inspiring person, full of stories. What's the book? Oh, the, the new one's called Loaf Story. But Loaf. cut that off the end because we don't plug. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> this is 100% relevant to this podcast, Loaf Story. I have seen you posting about that, and I didn't realise it was about food memories. So that's gorgeous. That's going to be my new bedtime reading. And, <laughs> and I have, I'm saying it again, but I'm very glad that you're still alive. And uh, I look forward to seeing everything that you're doing in the future. Thank you very much indeed. Well, that was Tim Hayward and I honestly could have talked to him all day. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you're also enjoying some of this gorgeous summer weather that we're having if you're in the UK. If you're elsewhere in the world you're probably enjoying better weather than we were anyway. <laughs> I have recorded a few conversations I'm going to do my best to edit them up and put them out over the next few weeks. Might not be one a week but uh, that's my aim and I look forward to seeing you on Instagram and if you have a, an, a yearning to bake something gluten-free please check out my website with my online gluten-free courses. All of Tim's information you can find in the show notes so you can access that through Apple Podcasts or if you go to my website naomidevlin.co.uk then you can find it in the show notes for the podcast there all right